Welcome to Career and Ruins, the podcast that puts the C, the I and the R in Christmas. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm Derek Pittman. And I'm Laurent Shaw. Oh, it's good to be back. It is, yeah. It's it's Christmas time. Holiday special. Holiday special. Uh, okay, we've we got, got a few, few treats. Special treats. Yeah, special yeah. treats. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah, what, we, what we've got, I'm going to catch up on what's, what we've been up to. Yeah. Um, we are going to have a game of um, Money Trumps. Money I've got a bit of a treat for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you don't know about uh, okay. this yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we're going to catch up with Adam Stanford, who's a legend and is the director of Aerial Camp. Uh, Excellent. Looking forward uh, to that. Then uh, we have got another treat. Oh, yeah. So came through the post today. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a festive special. Yeah, a season yeah. for treats. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, how have you been? What's been on your mind? Oh, I've been good, yeah. Um, saw some archaeology in the news this week and it got me thinking. Oh, right. I must admit, I've been off work, so I've probably been thinking about things too much. <laughs> too much time to dwell on things. Um, but there was an article uh, a few days ago about a, a discovery at Mount Athos in Greece okay. of some bones tucked away under a church. Right. Uh, predominantly long bones, and we'll, we'll come back to that. Long bones being leg bones. Leg bones, arm okay. bones limbs, basically. Arm bones as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the headline was, it's, it's your classic archaeological headline, um... Mysterious female skeleton found at Mount Athos, which is traditionally a male-only monastery. Okay. So it's, it's, it was a striking headline. Um, and it, my, my initial reaction was, oh, the media. Oh, they're doing it again. <laughs> oh. And I was, I was chatting to our friend Robin, um, who is an archaeologist in Greece, um, about the validity of this article. And we started, as you do, tearing it apart sentence by sentence, which is a bit harsh. Um, but it got me kind of thinking about the, the sensationalized headline and actually if you read the if you read the, the literal words that they're quoting from the archaeologists and scientists involved they don't know it's women it's just a slightly smaller sized bone it's within the range of um biologically female right so it's 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 all a bit speculative but it's obviously been hyped up to to get a bit of media attention and get mm-hmm. a bit of press which is which is fair enough and we've We've all been there. Don't know what we? you're talking about. We certainly never strapped a pony to a magnetometer <laughs> to, to get on the knees. Oh, genuine science. Um, the thing, the thing that most alarmed me was not necessarily the science. Okay, you do what you need to do to, to get in the news, and it's an interesting headline, and why not? But nobody seemed to notice that it was a bunch of disarticulated limbs buried under a church in a monastery. Where's the rest of them? <laughs> what, what's happened there? What, what mystery? I, is it zombies? Is it an apocalyptic thing? Is someone is it foraging re-interment? Limbs, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, there could be yeah. a sensible answer, mm, but mm. Uh, it just it just got my mind racing that actually there's all of this kind of hyperbole around the uh, the biological sex of a skeleton, which they're not convi- completely convinced of anyway, and yet. There's a much more interesting story that I think would have made a more interesting headline. Well, whilst you're absolutely right, I fear that the uh, newspapers might not find us the question of why are these here quite as interesting <laughs> yeah. as female found in male only area. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. I'll take that. How about you, pal? What have you been thinking about? Um, I, so obviously we're just out the, the other end of a general election here. In, are, we, are we talking about yeah, that? Yeah, I'd like to. I, I've been a bit reflective, a bit forward thinking, mm. and um, and I sort of. I sort of was hoping to use our platform in a way of letting people know that are out there that might be listening mm-hmm. about what might be coming around the corner or what we should be thinking about and how we as a discipline should perhaps be putting our best foot forward okay. and and seeing our putting ourselves in good light making sure we're relevant and um, we're ready for 
what might be coming because we don't know what's coming. But um, I start with, with the results of the general election. I started looking at what what the current government, who have been in power for quite a while now, mm-hmm. by a number of years, what what sort of things that they have implemented or done that have impacted on the his, historic environment and mm-hmm. our discipline of archaeology. Um, and there are so many different things that that are progressive in some ways and and have negative effects in other ways. And simple things like um, extended permissions on um, permitted development rules or relaxed rules Mm. around permitted development that has the potential to have impact on archaeological deposits, Um, cuts around local governments and um, protected landscapes or ring fence around um, budgets that, whilst they're still the same budget, if you're not taking into account inflation, Mm. um, that's effectively a cut. Um, And the breakup of English heritage, as it was, into Mm. historic England and English heritage, and um, English heritage are now a charity, and they had eight years to make themselves self-sufficient. They're now five years into that that, that breakup. So that'll be coming quite quickly. Yeah, now. and yeah. Um, I'm sure everything's fine. I, I, I know I've no ins, ins and outs of their their setup, but um, if they aren't quite fine, where's that budget going to come from? That mm. shortfall is that going to be taken out of Historic England's budget? Will the government take it from somewhere else? Um, so what you're saying is this next five years, this next term of Parliament is quite important for yeah, heritage. Yeah, yeah. And even things like tuition fees. Mm. I mean, in this this last few terms, we've, we've seen tuition fees rise massively. And I mean, I'm, I'm no expert with universities and numbers around uh, archaeology degrees, but as I understand it, they're not fantastic compared to... I, I think it, it, the, the bigger the fees, the bigger the debt you're likely to incur, the more fiscal a decision you're going to make yeah. at that stage, which I, I think for... For higher education is a bit of a shame because for me it's always been a place to go and learn how to critically think and the name of the degree and the title it does matter but you get an awful lot of benefit from doing any degree and i suspect higher fees could only serve to put off people who wouldn't necessarily go into accounting business economics the degrees that are fiscally sensible um they'd only be able to do one much like me at the time who I chose to do a degree I'd find interesting because I knew I wouldn't stick at it any other way. Whereas that choice is becoming a more difficult one, I think. Absolutely. And then it makes it harder for you to champion your own discipline yeah, within yeah. within a university or within, mm. within academia. And that's a completely understandable decision for prospective students to yeah, make. Yeah, I'd hate to be a, a student making that choice now. Yeah, and I yeah. suspect I'd make a different one, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and then also the European link, because mm. th- there's European funding linked to so many different things, whether it's land management schemes, yeah. whether it's university research grants. Um, and there's the questions around where, where that funding is going to come from. And I just think in the next five years, there's going to be a lot of noise. Yeah. There's so much noise yeah. and people trying to make themselves relevant. And people are a lot more important and interesting than we as a discipline are. Mm. I think one of the best things you've ever said to me, Derek, <laughs> is a rare moment of clarity for you, <laughs> is you. that we serve at the public's discretion. Yes, yeah. If they don't care, what are we doing? Exactly yeah. that. And um, so therefore, whereas everyone's going to be shouting about perhaps, as I say, a lot more important things like the National Health Service yeah. or other things like that, um, we need to be singing. Yeah. We need to be putting our best foot forwards. We need to be highlighting all the fantastic work mm. that our discipline, archaeology, cultural heritage, um, anthropology, all these things do and the benefits that they bring to society, whether it's through well-being, whether through it's through education, whether it's through furthering science and furthering business opportunities, improving development techniques. 
Um, um, yeah, it's, you're right. It, we we have to use our voice, and we have to use it positively. Yes. I think it'd be. It's so easy, particularly in the hangover of a general election that um, maybe hasn't gone the way. Certainly, I was hoping it may not go this way. Um, it's easy to get negative. It's easy to be inward looking. It's easy to look too much to yourself and sort of get in that cycle of self-perpetuating negativity. But heritage brings so much value nationally, both economically, in terms of mental health, in terms of well-being. It would be, it's a shame not to draw attention to those yeah. highlights, the real positives. And get behind organisations such as the Chartered Institute for Archaeology, yeah. British, um, the Council for British Archaeology, I got it right this week, yeah. um, that are championing us, they yeah. are supporting us, and it's easy to nitpick and find problems. But if, if you identify a problem, be positive, be constructive yeah. with those issues. Yeah. Bring people to the conversation. Don't put people off the conversation. Um, platforms such as Twitter can be amazingly powerful, but if you start having an inward-facing vacuum of negativity mm. and witch hunting, it's wholly unhelpful. So, yes, pull people up, but bring people in the conversation with yeah. you because then you, we can do so much more. Drive it forward positively and constructively. Mm, it's mm. a really powerful message. And it echoes a little bit what Mike um, Mike Hayworth was saying in our chat um, a couple of weeks ago now uh, about how planning and the role of heritage within the planning process is so vital for our discipline's survival. And it's fair to say that the legislation on that front has been watered down a little bit over the last 10 years. And it's it's through local action, local enthusiasm, local love for heritage that keeps it going and moves it forward. Yeah. And we, we need to foster that joy. That's it. Everything that every person that works in archaeology does is brilliant. It's fascinating. It's informative. And it has its place. But we need to be highlighting why that is. Not doing extraordinary headlines about no. long bones being underneath <laughs> church, but doing positive, constructive, reinforcing our discipline and coming together because I fear, and I hope I'm wrong, but I fear there's a fight ahead. Mm. And um, if we don't work together, yeah, we, we, we want to be careful. A house divided is a house conquered. <laughs> is that... <laughs> Pittman, 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I got that from somewhere. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, just... Let's go into 2020 and be great. Let's prove why we're a fantastic discipline and why we're full of some of the most creative and educated and informed individuals. And let's go make a really positive impact. So we'll take the career and ruins positive mantra and spread it across yeah, the discipline. Yeah, that's it. I'm down for that. Anyway, um, <laughs> we've got one you trumps. Uh, you told me you had a little treat for me. Yeah, so... Um, I might have spoken to our sound guy, Guy, he's sound a guy, sound guy. guy, he is, and um, <laughs> he might have pulled together still a treat for you. One you drums, like inheritance. You crave for someone different than Stonehenge. Stonehenge? <laughs> In a world where everyone goes to regularly visiting heritage sites, only one game can change your mind into what you might be interested in. One, you trumps! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Oh my gosh. That is, One year trumps. That is quite amazing. The, One year uh, trumps is back with force. Recruit. Saying, yeah, that's it. Rebranded. And the, the career in ruins game which breathes new light into underappreciated and underrepresented archaeological monuments. Hey. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, drawing attention to those sites, those places, that hidden heritage that you love but maybe people don't know enough about. That's it. So, and I set you a bit of homework this week. You did. You had. You said two Christmas or holiday themed monuments. I did. <laughs> and as I've treated you to a new uh, theme tune, I'm going to give you the pleasure of going first. Okay. So I I got thinking. What what is Christmas to me? I've got two young kids, so obviously it's Father Christmas. Okay. And uh, it's jolly old Saint Nick. Ah, oh, Saint Nick. Who was Saint Nick? Where was where was he born? Where did he grow up? And that got me to a site called Mira in modern day Turkey. Um, but it's an ancient. Whoa, Greek whoa, site. whoa! Father Christmas from Turkey. Apparently so. Wow! <laughs> Tell me more. Well, from ancient Greek, ancient Greece, even. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, ancient Greek. My mistake. So it's 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 a gorgeous site. It kind of makes me want to to go and visit. To be honest, um, features heavily in the New Testament, as many a site does. It was an ancient Greek maritime city in Asia Minor, um, and it was the birthplace of St. Nicholas of Myra, who, in terms of folklore and sort of Christian theology, became Father Christmas, our very own Santa Claus, if you will. Yeah. So I thought, it's it's a hell of a sight. There's some magnificent Greek ruins there, and you know how much I love a Greek ruin. Um, accessibility, it's, it's on the coast, it's a beautiful place to visit. I imagine you could get there by boat, which oh, would be quite nice. Okay. So Public I think, transport. <laughs> I think if you, if you want a, a Christmas site, never mind Lapland, never mind anything like that, you want to go to the birthplace of Father Christmas. Okay, nice. I mean, okay, that's a good, good, good one, good one. Um, I, I've gone around the similar theme as oh, you right. here. Oh, yeah, right. are, we, are we money-trumping? <laughs> we are money-trumping. <laughs> I mean, I mean, going to the birthplace of St. Nicholas is good, but why wouldn't you want to go to the church of St. Nicholas in Coombe, St. Nicholas? <laughs> well, to be honest, I don't know why I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a double St. Nicholas whammy. <laughs> you've, uh, you've, you've thrown down a St. Nicholas face gauntlet there, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> so um, this is um, a Norman church um, in Somerset in England. Um and it's it's just a lovely little church that's accessible. It's it still survives in its in its um, Norman origins. Um, it was enlarged, um, and aisles were added in the fifteenth century. And further restoration was done in the in eighteen thirties. But it's a lovely little site. You can go for a nice cider next door. Um, it's very accessible. There's a what's that main road that goes from Bristol all the way down to Cornwall? The um, M4. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is a motorway. <laughs> so this is reasonably accessible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not quite as old as yours, but yeah, in terms of British history as well, apologies to our uh, cousins at, on, across the globe that do listen. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I was pretty happy with that, but I, I, I'll probably hand it to you, the birthplace places. Oh, I don't know. Though. Why, why would you go to a, a gorgeous ruin on the Aegean coast when you could drive down the M4 to Somerset. <laughs> Mine, one of the Alta Pitmen. Hey. Uh, what you, what's your second one then? Well, this one, I, I struggled. After my first one, I thought, how how am I going to top the birthplace of Father Christmas? But it's, 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 it's not doable. Um, and as, as I said just now, I was, I've been on holiday this week, I've been on leave, and I was just laid on the sofa, and I looked up at the Christmas tree, and I thought, baubles. Right. I thought, Baubles are about bourbons. Bourbons, not not a delicious tea biscuit. <laughs> um, baubles are 
about as Christmassy as you can get, I think. I, I don't think there's, there's anything more Christmas than a bauble. And I, it occurred to me, I don't know where they came from, where that tradition started, mm. where, where the sort of first bauble was made. And it turns out it's in a place called Luschka, Right. in Germany. Um, it's a little village and it's chocked full of medieval and post-medieval glassworks. A uh, bit of industry in there, as you know, I like mm-hmm. industry. Um, and it, it was the birthplace of the bauble. Nice. But what's really nice from a Monutrump perspective <laughs> is, is uh, you can still go and see some authentic glassblowing workshops who still kick out baubles today. So you can travel down there and pick yourself up an authentic original bauble. Nice, mm. nice. That could be, I think we need a Korean Ruins road trip next year. To a bauble. Yeah. Christmas special. Christmas special. At the birthplace of the bauble. So I don't want to accidentally <laughs> go to the birthplace of the bourbon. <laughs> I quite like that. They're one of my favourite biscuits. <laughs> no. They've got great dunking no. potential. No, no. The, the middle bit no. holds them together. You can no. dunk for a bit longer. Custard cream maybe, but no. Oh, you yeah, have to laugh. Custard anyway, cream. Money trunk. <laughs> sorry, money sorry. Trunks. Not, not biscuit trunks. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I mean, it's good. But I think I, I'm happy with my final one. Go ahead. Not the UK-based one, but the turkey building. <laughs> you just made me choke on my pink gin and tonic. <laughs> yes, that's right. The turkey building. Okay, you're going to have to give me some context. Yeah. Is, well, this, is this some sort of abattoir? <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. This is a grade two listed building. Okay. Uh, okay. Lo- that is, it is. It's, um, it's located in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. In the, the parish of Wooten Underwood. Ooh. <laughs> For all those parish lovers out there. And, and it's, it's, it's effectively a uh, 18th century garden pavilion. <laughs> okay. So what, why is it called the, the turkey? Nice. Um, so it's located in a nice... Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I must admit, when you sent me that link, I thought, turkey house, brilliant. There's no way I could top this. Why is it called the turkey house? No, nowhere could I find it. I went to the listing. I went to the, the what do you mean I sent it to you before? We, we, don't, we haven't planned this. Oh, yeah. We don't plan anything. As well, our regular listeners yes. know. Yeah. It, no, it's part of Wooden House, which is um, a capability brown uh, um, sort of garden, um, sort of design garden. Presumably owned by Bernard Matthews. Um, this is pre-Twizzler age yeah (laughs) um, in terms of access you can go to there they have a fantastic website for Wooden House and they have opening hours on there it's a great family day out you get to go around the gardens get to see a bit of Capability Brown which is which is no bad thing Um, and you get to stand in the Turkey House I don't think there's any beating that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pardon me, we should have done more research. Never now. mind, <laughs> sipping glue vine in your glass blower's cottage in the, in the middle of southern Germany. We'll go Too far. We'll go Accessibility. To okay, fair enough. But not if you're German. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> that was a good game of Monutrumps. Yeah. And we need more. We need more. Anyway, Please. join us next time on. Monutrumps. <laughs> okay, the theme tune was great. Yeah. I. I look forward to doing more episodes of Monty Trumps, and we need lots of people to send in their own Monty Trumps yes. to help drive it forward. So please do get on Twitter, get on the Facebook, send us your Monty Trumps, and we'll At add them to the Career list. Ruins. That sounds mm. plausible. Mm-hmm. All right. So who do we talk to this week, Laurie? We have got Adam Stanford. So he is director of Aerial Cam. He's a bit of a legend. Mm-hmm. I've known him since two thousand and eight. 
Um, but we've worked on so many different projects together from the Stonehenge Riverside project to Rapa Nui, Easter Island. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned that Hang before. Hang Whoa. Have you been to Easter Island? Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't told um, To loads of little um, bits of research that we've done in the New Forest. So he's helped mm. photograph archaeological sites. He came down to the Bournemouth University undergraduate dig at yeah. the Big Dig, Juratrigus Big Dig, back in the day. And he's someone that's kind of, he's touched on many projects. You, you see his logo almost ubiquitously around. Yeah, and he just takes the most beautiful photos, mm. both terrestrial, so from his own SLR. But he started off, well, he, he's he's specialised in aerial images. Mm. So his his company, Aerial Cam, which is currently part of Sumo, um, as part of that survey company. But um, he he takes some beautiful images, and I recommend everyone gets onto it. But I won't say too much. I think we should just have a listen, yep. and we'll come back in. Cool. Adam, welcome to Career in Ruins. Hello. It's great to have you along. You're, you're a guy I've worked with for well, over 10 years now. I think it's probably nearer about 15 years. Something like that, yeah. yeah. But we met through the Stonehenge Riverside project. Yes. Yeah. So I think, was it around about 2006, 2007? I was a latecomer, so I, my first year was 2008. Oh, there you go then. Yeah, there you yeah. Go. So it's about 12 years or so. Yeah. 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 Welcome. It's great to have you here. I've been hoping to catch you for an interview for this podcast for a while now because uh, knowing you so well and knowing your different approach into the profession and your areas of expertise, I think it's a really nice addition for our listeners to hear and understand how you got into the profession, what your interests are, and yeah. Um, maybe, yeah, see it's a slightly different side to, to it all. So thank you for agreeing to to be with us today. No problem. Um, we start the podcast with this, the first question is, is, would you mind explaining to us a bit uh, how you got to where you are today? Um, so for those of you that don't know, Adam runs a company called Aerial Cam. That's right. She's now part of Sumo. Um, but it's been a slightly different route in, into it all and the journey's been quite interesting, I think. So yes, it's evolved um, even since I actually got into archaeology. It's evolved a lot. It's changed from the original sort of... Um, way I started to do things mm. so but really um, I, I came via a long route really I was in the I left school um, with really no qualifications and went straight into um, the army I was in the Royal Engineers for 10 years and once I finished there I um, wanted to stay working outside which I'd done mostly when I was in the army and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do and I did lots of voluntary work in countryside management uh, working with um, park rangers and things like that, but could never really get a job doing that. I was competing with people with um, lots of degrees in arboriculture and so on. Mm. Um, and then I ended up falling into an IT career, and, right. um, which was a bit of a surprise. But, and then I actually became a computer programmer for a while, oh, wow. which um, was okay. It paid the bills, but it really didn't inspire me. No. Um, I didn't like being the wrong side of the window. And... Um, so then I uh, decided to go and seek out something that I was actually interested in to see if I could make a career out of that. And so I did go and do a bit of study in archaeology at Bristol University because I saw that that was something that I was interested in um, and had been for since I was a boy, really. And then um, through that, I then started to do some part-time work in commercial archaeology, um, some digging, and, and then I took about six months of unpaid leave to go off and do more and never went back to my 
proper job. <laughs> and I was on the digging circuit for a few years. And Which companies did you... Um, there were various companies, really, that I... D it was, you know, um, as you know, on the digging circuit, it's, it's here, there, and everywhere yeah, you can get course. some work. And so um, companies like Gifford and SLR Consulting and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Uh, after some years of doing that, I then decided that uh, um, I really wanted to specialise. And I'd always been into photography, right from a boy, and certainly when I was in the army, when I was able to afford some better equipment, I really got into photography from a more of an artistic point of view. But then as I was digging, um, I became more and more responsible for taking photographs on site, and really would sort of take over that role, um, because I could handle the equipment. And generally on sites, f uh, cameras and things like that aren't looked after yeah, very well, and I kind of, that really I frustrated me. And so, um, uh, so then it came to me really that actually what I could do is specialise in archaeological photography. And so um, I looked for a way of uh, making that um, something that I could make happen. Um, and one of the things that on, on archaeological excavations is that we used to use things like scaffolding towers in order mm -hmm. to get overhead photographs of the uh, trenches. And um, as um, archaeology was becoming more health and safety aware and um, the scaffolding towers were really no longer being used. And so that, there was a bit of a gap there about being able to get those kind of photographs. And so I investigated the ways we could do it and uh, came across uh, telescopic masts, uh, which had been used in the military for putting antennae uh, for radio uh, signals up in the air. Um, but now they were starting to be used and put onto vehicles so that you could put cameras on the top of them. Okay. And so um, I investigated all of that and then eventually I invested a, a fair chunk of money um, and imported a mast from Canada, right. mounted it on a Land Rover Defender um, and then set up the company Aerial Cam and then uh, was then a sort of um, making myself available to archaeologists all over the country to come and photograph their excavations. So the, the going back a bit, so this idea is to get really nice either plan shots or very high oblique shots of large-scale excavations to get the whole trench in, so whereas yeah. to, to offer something other than your traditional excavation site plans and things like that. Well, really it was about getting those overhead photographs, so we, the mast would go up 20 metres, okay. and so we could drive the, the Land Rover up to a trench uh, which may have a roundhouse in it or something like that or a kiln or something and then we'd put the camera up um, on the top of the mast and press the button it would go up to 20 meters up in the air and then in the back of the Land Rover I'd control it with a, a joystick so mm -hmm. we could a bit like CCTV we could position it with a pan and tilt head and then I could use the computer then to set the camera up take the pictures and the pictures would come back down to the laptop I'd be able to review those while the camera was still in the air mm -hmm. And so these gave us really nice um, near near vertical but um, high obliques. Mm -hmm. um, and the beauty was that we could move around the site and get photographs from lots of different positions. So much more versatile than scaffolding tower mm -hmm. um, and a lot safer than any other method. Of course. Yeah, so Aerial became, um, and I became uh, quite popular and I was asked to go work on excavations all over the country. Um, and that was mainly sort of commercial work. So I was working for other archaeological units mm -hmm. um, uh, and going to record their excavations. Um, and then um, there were a number of academic projects that I was asked to go and work on. Um, and the first one being right at the beginning of Aerial Cam being set up was the Stonehenge Riverside project. Mm -hmm. 
um, and that's when we were uh, there were excavations being carried out at Durrington Walls, and there were Neolithic um, house floors being exposed there. Really fantastic archaeology, um, but getting photographs from above those to show the house floors in, in photographic plan um, was really useful um, mm. for the team and also for sharing with other researchers. And in fact, some of those photographs of those house floors were used later on for the recreation of the um, the Neolithic houses at the Stonehenge Visitor Centre. Ah, uh, the new, this new setup. Oh, That's fantastic. right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, in the um, you know working out how they were going to build them, uh, some of those photographs were used to, amazing uh, for that. Um, and then other academic projects, then um, such as the um, landscapes of construction projects on Rapa Nui mm -hmm. or Easter Island, with Sue Hamilton and Colin Richards, uh, Kate Wellham, and of course yourself came mm -hmm. out on that one. Um, and that's really when going all that way out into the South Pacific, um, we, you really have to think about the equipment that you're using, the techniques that you're going to adopt, and whether you're going to get what you want. And originally I was asked to go out there as the photographer for the project, but really um, the technique of photogrammetry became really quite important, and I kind of brought that to the project and then that became quite a key element. Too. And by photogrammetry you mean 3D recording of Yeah, so photogrammetry is uh, a technique which has been around as long as uh, photography really, mm. um, but now we're in the digital um, era of photography. Um, we can use software instead of stereoscopic glasses and things like that in order to create 3D um, impressions of things. And so photogrammetry works by, we take lots of photographs from different positions, it's all overlap, and then the, um, we put those photographs into the into the computer, and then the software then um, goes through all those photographs and gradually builds up a point cloud and creates a 3D model mm. um, of the um, landscape or historic building or the excavation uh, that we've um, recorded or photographed. In terms of the power of that technique, it's a, it's a good time to be in archaeology, isn't it? It's bringing out some pretty absolutely, yeah. Results. So, so this technology of um, or this technique of um, photogrammetry, or it's also known as structure from motion, um, 3D modelling basically, has, has been a revolution for archaeologists um, and the way they record the evidence that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. yeah, nice, and so you, you employed that in, East, in Rapa Nui as well, didn't yep, you? Yeah, so that's, um, that's really where, um, because these academic projects kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're wanting to push the boundaries and also then go all that distance, um, we're um, taking new kit, developing techniques and methods. And so um, out on uh, Easter Island, I, I um, experimented and um, recorded landscapes using kites because mm -hmm. we weren't able to get the Land Rover and the telescopic mast out there. <laughs> of course. We had to use handheld equipment or equipment that we could take in our um, um, uh, baggage and fly all the way out there. And of course, you can't drive across the landscape anywhere, so you have to be mobile, you have to be able to walk the kit in. So we had handheld telescopic masts with cameras on the top, um, things like kites. Um, which uh, we would uh, to suspend a camera from beneath and control remotely, um, and then later on, as the technology evolved with UAVs or drones, uh, we were able to um, to take those out as well. And mm. on the very last trip um, to, of five that I did to Easter Island, um, I was able to take um, um, one of the latest quadcopters. So this was um, January, February, two thousand and fifteen. And then we had um, a bit of kit that was safe to use. We could properly control it. And also it had the kind of camera and sensor within that camera 
that we were able to use very effectively for photogrammetry. Okay. And so that on that very last trip, and it was like the eleventh hour of the project, you know, um, we were able to, um, and it took some time to get permission to use the equipment mm -hmm. on the island. And then when we got permission, we had only a few days uh, ready to do it. And then we managed to map the um, the quarry bays, which were in uh, cut into the side of Ranoraku, which is a volcano. Um, where all the, uh, or 99% of the um, Moai, or the statues that Easter Island is famous for, uh, they were quarried from there. We were able to map uh, using photogrammetry and flying over the quarry, uh, over the Amazing. Um, volcano, and map where all these were, oh. and create a 3D model of that. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. So, because you, you're now a fully qualified drone pilot, you've got your license and whatnot. Yeah, so now I'm in my fifth year of having a permission for commercial operation mm. of UAVs or drones. It's, it's, you've always, since I've known you, you've always been an early adopter of these technologies, so whether it's your Land Rover with a telescopic pole, or you're walking around with a with kite, the, the kite <laughs> exactly, or your yeah. your mobile mast yeah. uh, to different types of drones. Uh, do you find now that you're in a good place with technology and that it, it's you, you don't yeah. necessarily have to play with things too much? It's a bit easier. Or? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm because there's always somebody else out there doing something similar, mm -hmm. and you know, so things like kites and poles and and then UAVs. And now there's lots of people with UAVs, but. Um, uh, but now, you know, um, having built up this experience and the, and, the, and, all, and the need for being able to take pictures from lots of different positions and build 3D models and map landscapes and buildings and so on. Um, and now, of course, using um, proper GPS equipment to georeference everything mm -hmm. and then um, it's really sort of going from photography now to geomatics. Yeah. And uh, so we've reached sort of perfect storm, really of equipment um, methods techniques experience um, and and now the the data that we can gather and process and the information that we can tease out from all of that is absolutely extraordinary it's yeah. fantastic no, so we're discovering more now than we've you know just taking photographs was fantastic we've got yeah. some really great photographs and some records of the uh, of the archaeology but now we're able to discover archaeology without even digging it um, because we can just fly over the landscape, take lots of photographs, create a 3D model of that and then process that even further in order to tease out mm -hmm. the finer detail of, of the humps and bumps that might tell us what the archaeology is underneath. Well, there we go. I really enjoyed listening to that. Yeah. Um, I, it's fair to say I don't know Adam quite as well as you do, but we've, we've met a few times, but it's really nice to hear a bit about his background and, yeah. and kind of where he came from, how he got to where he is now. I'm always a big fan of the alternative entrance into uh, into archaeology uh, rather than doing, like myself and yourself, just going down yeah, the standard yeah. route of college, university, masters and whatnot. But um, yeah, going from a uh, royal engineer yeah. to uh, then commercial excavations, and, and then just building this brilliant niche for himself. Yeah. It's incredible to and see. And work, he worked in those early days, he worked bloody hard. Yeah. And he, he's one of those, he's kind of developed a profession that kind of, I suppose, it mirrors archaeology generally, in that he he needs to be both an artist and a scientist to a point. So he can, he can produce these beautiful, incredibly artistic photographs. And some of his 
work is incredible as we've seen um, but the the mastery of photogrammetry and stitching images and doing geomatic survey using using those techniques is incredibly it's a skilled task That's and it. to have both is incredible and i think you, you've hit the nail on the head there as archaeologists when you talk to professionals depending on whether they're interested in the science and the processes or not they'll want a cool 3D image or a great beautiful picture, they won't care how it's done. Yeah. Or they'll want a perfect scientific 3D model that you can explain exactly how you've done it and how many pictures there are and what the angles are. And Or they want that cover shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you can do all of them, amazing. And listen to that, it's quite weird, actually. I, th- I think I became aware of Adam long before I ever met him because mm-hmm. uh, I... I started dabbling in both aerial photography and photogrammetry when I was early on in my PhD, so it would have been around 2012, Mm -hmm. 2013, thereabouts. And we were working in Russia on a project, and we couldn't take much equipment, we couldn't hire helicopters, and none of the aerial imagery was declassified. So we were working on a way of of capturing data ourselves, and we went down the, the route of kite aerial photography um which which adam i know uses quite heavily um but also at the time we were looking at being able to record things quickly while we were there for two weeks that we could then bring back and process and store more of a a data set than we otherwise could have done so we went down the route of exploring photogrammetry with a bit of software i think it's called 123d capture it's become part of autodesk suite now and i remember looking around for examples of people doing similar work and, and adam was one i came across and sort of inspired me to keep working on it and doing more. Yeah. So some of, some of my early kind of dabblings in photogrammetry and aerial photography came from seeing what Adam was doing, despite never having never met him. That's or, or right. Him. And uh, it's, what he didn't mention there is he's done some amazing rock art work as mm. well. So we, we actually got him back out to Qatar while I was working out there um, to, to capture some nice cover shots, but also create some 3D images of that, the rock art that we, we were looking at out there. Superb. And it's it's there's something about... There was a blissful two or three years when cameras were getting light and good, so you could suspend them on kites, but drones hadn't become affordable and usable yet. And I, I, I look back on those times quite fondly, because it was much more of a craft. Well, Richard Osgood, in, our, in episode one, he talks about how he loves innovators mm. and people that are changing, always pushing the boundaries or trying new yeah. things. And I, I'd go as far as saying, I bet Adam falls within Richard's... Uh... Massively, um, for sure. And he, you could easily look at it now and say, oh, anyone can pick up a drone and go and fly it around and take loads of wonderful pictures. But actually the the fact that Adam's 10 years ahead in terms of conceptualising which imagery, what angles you need, the science behind it, the mechanics behind it, it I think it highlights when you see his work just how much of a mastery he yeah, has over that. Absolutely. And it would take a decade to catch up with that, mm. I think. Speaking of mastery, that's a good place to go in back into the interview. Shall we? <laughs> As well as all this lovely 3D data that you're amazing at, um, you're also renowned for a few decent, beautiful shots now, <laughs> now and <laughs> again. So I wonder if you've got a particular photo that you're yeah. you're proud of, or you, you, well, starting you know. as a, a photographer, really, specialising in archaeological photography, and before photogrammetry came along, I did a lot of ground-based photographs as well as um, aerial photographs from the mast and kites and so on, but. Um, as photogrammetry has become more the thing, and now I'm really more of a surveyor than a photographer, um, it is a slight frustration on my part that I'm not actually taking those photographs anymore. <laughs> and some of those really nice shots that I used to take of um, excavations or 
historic buildings or ancient monuments. Um, but so there are a few photographs, uh, there are quite a few, and I'm hoping to bring those out so that people can see them because many of them haven't seen the light no. of day. Um, but there will there be some that people will probably know because they've been on the front cover and within books and magazines. So there's that one I took in 2007, uh, 2007 of Stonehenge mm -hmm. um, using the telescopic mast. Um, so not illegal at all, <laughs> parked on the side of the road. Uh, looking back at Stonehenge, and it's actually a, a three-image panoramic right. of Stonehenge, uh, just as the early morning mist is kind of dissipating, it's still in the coombe, as you can see behind the A303. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's that's been a very popular image, and mm -hmm. probably one of the things that got Aerial Cam um, to be known by many other archaeologists. We all have to send two or three of your favourites and we'll put them up yeah. on our social media. Yeah. Um, that's brilliant. Thank you for giving us that, that overview, Adam. Um, so we're going to go on to our sort of next two, two, three questions, but okay. they can be quite short. So then the next question we tend to ask people is, is there a bit of work that you've been involved in or that you've produced that you're particularly proud of? Um, or you're happy with the outputs? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, there are many. Um, so, some I can't mention because they're, you know, um, commercially sensitive um, on big infrastructure projects and things like that. But um, uh, <coughs> I think probably one of the most recent um, bits of work we've done, uh, which was really satisfying, was um, on the the hill forts of North Devon. Okay. Area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, and that was with um, Cotswold Archaeology and um, North Devon Coast Council. And um, we did five hill forts, and I um, flew those and did photogrammetry of them. They're the cliff or promontory um, forts, um, cliff edge ones. So some of them are slightly falling into the yeah. sea. Mm -hmm. And so um, the results of that are spectacular, right. um, if I say so myself. But um, <laughs> but very satisfying to have mm. gone out into those landscapes. Um, it, we, we did it in the early part of this year, mm -hmm. and so trying to choose a weather window when the winds weren't blowing up the cliff face at sort of 40 miles an hour. Um, so I had to go back and down to uh, Devon a few times. But the culmination of, of getting all of those done, mm. um, and then the, the 3D models that have um, come from that have been fantastic. And presumably they'll feed into the management of those sites and the interpretation and... That's right, and so then the, from that then there were walkover surveys, um, you know, and reports produced and there was a community element to that too. Oh, fantastic. But one of the other ones, and one that's been quite big with uh, for Aerial Camp for a number of years now, probably 10 or 12 years, um, has been Vindolanda upon okay. Hadrian's Wall. So a Roman fort. Mm -hmm. Um, site with several forts um, on top of each other from uh, different phases of the site um, and that's been another one really where techniques of we've even tried thermal imagery and stuff like that on there um, but the always um, because I'm going up there when the weather's right mm -hmm. it, Northumberland is always sunny to me <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely love going up there and working at Vindolanda is always a real pleasure Mm. It's an amazing site with some incredible finds, wow. and uh, and I've done work in uh, photographing the museums, um, and finds, and um, and the trenches, and the fort, and the landscape around it, 
Um, and it's just always fantastic to go and work up there. Oh, nice, that's great. So that's something you're particularly proud of or you've enjoyed being involved in. Is there a bit of work that you've come across that you've not been involved in at all, but you've been impressed with or jealous of or thought, wow, that, that's brilliant? So one of the things that I've really um, been interested in over the years, ever since I got into archaeology, have been things, particularly you know, prehistory, um, and particularly the Neolithic in the early Bronze Age, um, but also things like um, rock art that's sometimes associated with that kind of archaeology uh, in places like passage tombs and um, out in the landscape mm-hmm. on uh, rock outcrops or, or um, standing stones and so on. And photographing that has been a, you know, a challenge and I, I quite enjoy doing that. But there's one guy in Ireland, um, Ken Williams, and his website's um, Shadows and Stone, mm-hmm. Um, and his photographs um, are something I always admire, and it's like, it, it, inspirational photography. And so there's always somebody else out there doing something much better. And um, and yeah, that, that's really the stuff I'd, I'd like to go and look at more of his photographs, really, because what he produces is just oh, really? stunning. Well, we'll put a link out to that as well. It's not one I've come across. That, yeah. that sounds in, sounds very good. Good bit of advice yeah. there. I'll, we'll definitely go and look at that one. Um, so last question on the the podcast well last of other than a new one which we'll come on to but it won't take too long um derek and i have actually made a working time machine and anyone that comes onto the podcast gets a free return journey <laughs> there are a few rules you're not allowed to bring anyone back uh, you, yeah. you, you can't interfere or change the course of history uh, but all we need to know is where you'd like to go and, and why and we can send you on your way right <laughs> blimey well 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 i can go um yeah, maybe I'd like to be on Rapa Nui at the time when the canoes arrive. Okay. With the first inhabitants. The voyagers. Yeah, when they first arrive on the island. I'd just like to be a fly on the wall to see um, what the island was like mm-hmm. and, and what they did when they got there. Yeah, because there's obviously there's, with Rapa Nui, there's a lot of discussions about environmental side and or whether um, people chop down all these trees and yeah. complete stuff themselves or whether Absolutely. there's all wasn't. sorts of um, theories and misconceptions and misunderstandings about it mm. um, and, and, and and being there right at the beginning won't necessarily answer those questions but it will I think it would just be fascinating to see that sort of um, island in the Pacific with the first people arriving on it and these voyages yeah, what which might do? be a thousand years ago or um, 1200 years ago something like mm. that the date again is a bit iffy so I might have to go backwards and forwards a few times to oh, yeah. the, right time. I mean, we, the beauty of the time machine is you can stay there as long as you want but you'll come back seconds after you left so, fantastic and uh, so that you can we've, we've had uh, Keith Wilkinson mm. uh, go through a, a cold a nuclear winter or something like that <laughs> where the dinosaurs got wiped out so right. um, it's a, I, I figure yours would yeah. be quite an easy one to, uh, yeah. to do and, and if it if it is seconds then also it means I don't have to hang around in airports for two days <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's brilliant thank you so much Adam um, the one final thing I'd ask you so what we're looking to do in this season is start a new Spotify playlist because uh, we're acutely aware that music and songs can have really good connotations with regards to projects working or locations and things like that, yeah. and bring back fond memories. So I wonder if if you can think of one now, or if not, you can mm. tell us and we can put add it to the podcast later. Um, if you've got a song that brings good memories of a particular project or anything you've done. Okay, well, um, yeah, I absolutely love music and I listen to a lot of it um, because of all the travelling I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, um, I suppose um, 
I love lots of different types of music. I'm just gonna, one that just pops into my head, and it's really because of the colour of archaeology rather than one particular thing, and it's the um, Golden Brown by the Stranglers. Oh, good choice, <laughs> good choice. I know it's not about the soil, the song, but it's just a lovely well we'll add that to the playlist so everyone can start tuning in to the career and ruins playlist and thanks have for an archaeology day adam thank you so much for your time um what people won't know listening to this is that i had quite a few technical <laughs> issues with this so you've been very patient but uh, no worries you. catch up with you soon cheers lawrence Brain. Is that 10YR? 10YR. <laughs> I got a Munsell joke in. <laughs> isn't that Paul Cheatham's band name? I think it's, it's technically orange, isn't it? Golden Brain. <laughs> Brownie orange or orangey Brownie, brown? Yeah. Is it a clay or is it a silt? Oh, gosh. No, we don't. Clay or let's not go down a soil science route. <laughs> Whoa. Hold on there. That was really interesting. Um, raised an important issue, potential issue with the time machine that we haven't addressed yet. All right. Is the... Um, precision of archaeological dating ah, so yeah. i want to go back to see the moment the first stone at stonehenge was erected but my best carbon date is plus or minus 100 years <laughs> but we've got the um so i just, just gonna have to fiddle well no i've added one of those ipad um the original oh, like the skip, I, skip time buttons no do you remember on the old um iPods that you can oh, reel. Oh gosh, so go, yeah, there's touch shuffle. Yeah, okay. So you can you can get there and you think there's no stone yet. <laughs> oh, where's that stone appeared from? Oh, oh reverse back again, a bit. Back <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. That's yeah, a, yeah. a well, I well just, You know, I just didn't. You, I, I, sh- I knew you didn't read my emails. I don't get your memos. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, what a great, what a great chat. Yeah, and really nice end to the interview there. And um, yeah, we might follow up on the Spotify playlist. But... Are we going to be selective? Only do it when we know it's going to be a good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry to the last two people that we've had on. I may have forgotten to ask you that question. <laughs> but we'll bring it in. It'll be a definite feature of season 2.5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Post-Christmas yeah. Spotify playlist. Maybe post-January. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a great week, great interview and a great guy. Yeah. Now, I'm sure at the start of this podcast, you promised me more than one treat. Well... Um, we got a letter in the post. Ooh, the, the post still exists. Yeah, yeah. It came in the first post, the post that hurts the most. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> bit of a mighty boosh reference there. Um, but, um, them all in today. First but, months all know this. Um, yeah. Um, but it's a card addressed to us both, so let, if I just open it up. Okay, yeah. everyone listeners of the career in ruins podcast hi hello guess who we are this is jenny and chloe from the c-word hi we're a podcast about conservation yeah um, nothing are. else i mean nothing rude oh, plenty you? of other things <laughs> nothing rude and uh, we are indeed friends of Lawrence and derek who sent us a christmas card to include on our podcast so we thought we'd send one back um merry, merry christmas. christmas yeah hope you have a good one thank you very much for entrusting us with your time machine we we'll take good care of it you'll use it well it. we might give the outside a bit of a buff while we're at it you know i think so yes yeah. Micro crystalline works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll yeah. be fine. But yeah, in return, we would like to ask you for something. This is, can be a very stressful time of year for conservatives, and since you're it probably can. 
out and about uh, visiting exciting places, maybe some heritage places, we would like to uh, ask you to look after any conservators you see in the wild. Yes, heritage sites and museums are hotspots for sightings of conservators in this busy Christmas period, usually anxiously cleaning up after venue hire Christmas parties. Mm, Very concerned about crumbs. And Very wine Museums often have to hire out their spaces for venue hire, but this does mean parties and crumbs do get into the building, which is sometimes make, makes them very, very anxious. Makes them very anxious. They can also be found checking light levels next to Christmas trees and mm-hmm. climbing into foyer Christmas trees to check for pests. Yeah. So if you see any, they're often wearing aprons or lab coats and they're looking a little bit stressed. What should they do if they see one, Chloe? Well, first, I think you should approach in a calm, slow walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No running in the galleries. No. And confident body language. And then generally offer tea and mince pies in a safe dining specific space nearby. Yes. You may need to escort them gently out of Mm -hmm. the area they're in because they do get quite territorial. (laughs) So... If you take them to a safe dining space and offer them tea and cake, they, they will improve. Um, Try and avoid uh, historic curatorial questions. Yes, yeah, that can cause a relapse and it will be very bad. <laughs> um, but yes, please do look after our brethren and sistren if you do see them in the wild. Thanks so much for having a great podcast and keep up the great work in the new keep year. It up. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Oh, it's our pals Jenny and Chloe. I love a Christmas card. No, where's the time machine? Oh, didn't mention that to you. Well, you you know about (laughs) it. We look. We're off on holiday, aren't we? So uh, we've lent Jenny and Chloe the time machine. I'm looking forward to a seeing where they go with it and b seeing how nice and preserved conservator clean. That's going to be the cleanest ever been. It's got (laughs) it's got so many things from dead dinosaurs to um, Polynesian dust and everything (laughs) in between, and stuff from the future as well. I know know, post-apocalyptic future. It needs a a good. Bit of content. Couldn't think of a bit of people. And, uh, <laughs> so I have given them free tickets. I hope you don't mind. Oh, no, but, that's fine. That's fine. But no, if no, people no. want to find out what they've done with those tickets, they should tune in to yeah, the Seaworth. Tune in to the Free sure. podcast. Great podcast. Yeah. And yeah. We're, we're very happy to share our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like their uh, their jokes about um, events at Christmas time in their uh, museums. I, only this week I was at the New Forest Heritage Centre's uh, mm. festive uh, gathering and uh, there, was, there were. Aperitifs and <laughs> snacks all over the place, and the with the final straw being you had to leave your mulled wine at the table before you went into the oh, library. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they got me thinking as well about um, what am I. One of my best pals, Angelos Sotaropoulos, is a conservator um, based in Athens, and he he introduced me to Athens. one of my. Have you I, worked in did Greece? Did I say I've been to Greece? No, I didn't. Didn't know that. <laughs> he introduced me to one of my favourite museum games. <laughs> which um, I know museums are exciting enough as it is and they don't need any livening up but um, he showed me on the back of some of the statues he'd conserved that quite often conservators will leave a little square unconserved so you can see what it was like originally for okay. future reference yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he sort of showed me his mark on a bunch of these things okay. so I quite like going into museums full of statuary and marvels and looking for this tiny little square <laughs> conservation mark. Their tag mark. I, I don't know if that's a global thing or just something that Conservator graffiti. There. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it certainly livened up the Acropolis Museum for me. Oh, come on. That, 
people <laughs> opening up another statue, another statue. <laughs> Short of a few marbles. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> oh, that's us for this week. Yeah, should we go and have a nice festive break? Career in Ruins Christmas party yeah. and then a festive break. Lovely. But thank you for all our listeners um, so far this year uh, for Series 1 and Season 2. Um, we are... We will be back in January. Yep, we've got some interesting interviews lined up. Looking in the meantime, please subscribe, please share our podcast, contact us. Um, we we need you to give us the money trumps. Please do, yeah. And as many stars as you care to give <laughs> That's us. That's it. There's only so long I can spend on Historic England <laughs> listing website typing in festive words. <laughs> it's a gift that keeps giving. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>